Good morning and welcome. It is so great to be with you all this morning. And visitors, thank you so much for being here. We're so happy that you chose to be here with us today. We'd love to get to know you and your family. So if you want to stick around and ask some questions, that would be wonderful. We'd love to get to love y'all. And a couple quick announcements. I just want to remind people that there are classes going on. We have a new slate of them going on today. And Steve Burgess is going to be continuing his class on being peacemakers and biblical reconciliation. Brian Bass and Mike Smith are talking about the myriad of ways that we hear God's voice and walking into our God-created self, our true identity. And today we're starting a discipleship training class. So if there's any level in which you are interested in potentially being a leader of one of the groups that we're going to be starting up here in 2024, or you just want to hear more about it, then I would invite you to join me today as we talk about that. And all three of those classes are going to be upstairs in the main hallway. So if you go out this side and up the stairs, those classes will all be in that main hallway. So we ask that you stick around. And definitely stick around because right after classes, we're going to be having a celebration of the Duckworth family and Mark and all the many ways that he has poured into our church. And so I really just want to encourage you guys, if you are able to stick around, please do. Let's show them a ton of love and support for uh, their near decade long of service and pouring into this group of people. So I, I want to thank you, Mark, so much for, yeah. Thank you so much um, for your faithfulness to this group of people and the amount that you have poured into this church and how much you have led people's hearts into worship and how much stability you brought through really tumultuous times here. It is beautiful and we're so thankful. And Melissa, thank you too because so much of what you do goes unseen and you do a lot of behind the work stuff for our church and pour so much into our kids' ministry, you've been such a blessing to our church as well. Um, so yeah, let's give her a round of applause as well. Um, and also, your kids <laughs> have helped as well. Um, I know Ezra's been up here a lot, helping with a lot of behind the scenes stuff, um, and we're just, we're just so grateful for your family and the ways that you've poured into our church, and we love you guys, and you're leaving behind a really beautiful legacy. Thank you. So, back in my rapping days. Yes, my rapping days. Wow. Uh, that should not be cheered for. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but there would be moments where I would hear a song or an album and I would just be so inspired by another creative's work that I would want to go and just write a bunch for myself. I would want to uh, maybe create a, a song or an album, and I just felt this big wave of inspiration to do that. So in the downhill part of my rap career, which I don't know when the uphill part of it was, but it definitely wasn't in this season, um, I, I listened to an album, and I, I really got this inspiration to write again and start making... Uh, some music. 
And <laughs> I came up with this revolutionary idea that I just knew was gonna take off. It was an album in which every single song was based around items you would find in your kitchen. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. That, you know that's what everyone loves to listen to. So on this album, you would find song titles such as Toaster, <laughs> such as Sink, and Microwave, and Spoon. Yes, I had a song called Spoon. And it was all just riveting, right? But here's the thing. It wasn't literally about a spoon. No, it had a much deeper metaphor. <laughs> it was actually talking about the device in which we carry the living water into our systems, AKA the Bible. Whoa. <laughs> like, I just knew that that was going to take off. So as I create this 14 song album of kitchen items, well, not create, plan to create this, I start getting to the point where I'm writing my first song. And I'm like, all right, here we go. This is about to net me a Grammy. And I, I start writing it down, and then about like one line into this, I'm like, man, this ain't it. <laughs> this is not gonna work. This whole concept is terrible. <laughs> so I moved on from my dream of creating an album called In the Kitchen, um, which, you know, super creative title there. <laughs> I moved on from that dream like I have many other dreams that I've had because my motivation started to wane and I was like, this is just gonna be too hard to make this actually be good. <laughs> Isn't it easy though to do things like this? To have this really good idea on paper but whenever it comes to execution or whenever it comes to your motivation as that starts waning and the challenge starts increasing, it's just a lot easier to stop we can make plans saying, this weekend we're gonna go through our garage and we're gonna clean it all out. And then whenever you get to that weekend, you're like, well, maybe we can wait a little bit longer on that one. And then you have a friend that sends you a message, hey, could you help move truckloads of stuff into our new home? And then you're like, actually, I have to clean out my garage. I'm really sorry. Um, fortunately, I can't make it. Or whenever we start the yearly read through the Bible series, and we get to parts of Exodus or Leviticus and we're just like, yeah, maybe next year. Maybe next year we can do that. Oftentimes that's the way we look whenever we get to some parts of uh, scripture. It's easy to compromise or to quit whenever things get tough. Normally, whenever we make decisions to avoid commitment or do something that is challenging, we do it because we think that the fruit of whatever this thing is is not gonna be worth all the hardship of going through it. Or perhaps it's because something else that we have found is more compelling to us. And I've seen this play out in people's faith so much. Maybe it's experiencing personal pain or suffering or seeing it in somebody that you love. And, and seeing that, it could lead to a conclusion like something like God doesn't care or worse, that God's not real for this to even be happening. Maybe because of your own personal desire to do the things that you want to do as opposed to the things that you know that God wants you to do, you can just sort of compromise and justify whatever you're doing or lead, it leads you to a conclusion that faith in God is something that's irrelevant or archaic. So often because of our own personal experiences with hardship or challenge, we are so quick 
to throw God under the bus or completely throw him out of our lives. And if you feel that way today, or if you have felt that way, or if at some point in the future you will feel that way, Revelation has something just for you. In Revelation chapter five, we just talked about the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. And in chapter six, we see the lamb beginning to break off the seals of the scroll. And today, I'm just gonna be honest, we're getting into some weird stuff. <laughs> like, this is like apocalyptic literature at its most apocalyptic literature-ness, okay? So, we're getting into it, and I'm asking you to stick with me through the strange imagery because there really is a powerful message here. And just like how my song, Spoon, was not really about a spoon, and was truly a deep metaphor for something life-changing and good, so is what we're reading today in chapter six. It is a metaphorical message that is very, very good. So to summarize the opening parts of chapter six, it begins by talking about what is famously known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which I know a lot of pop culture has talked about that in different ways. But the first seal is opened by the lamb and it brings about a rider of a white horse who's wearing a crown on his head and is holding a bow, which this rider is a symbol for conquest and military victory. And then the next seal released is a horse with a rider that is carrying a sword. And uh, it's a red horse. And this is symbolizing war and violence breaking out everywhere on earth. The third seal was broken and a rider on a black horse came about and this rider was holding scales which was representing the scarcity of food that people would have to have as they are rationing because this great famine is coming about. And then the fourth seal breaks and there's this rider on a pale green horse and this rider's name is Death. And following behind Death is the grave or literally Hades. So it conveys this sense of Death is killing people and Hades is following behind picking them up as they go. It's, it's pretty dark imagery. But they had the authority to kill with sword, famine, disease, and wild animals is what it says. All four of these had that authority. And that echoes what is in Ezekiel chapter 14, which speaks of four dreadful judgments of the Lord, which are war, famine, disease, and wild animals. So this raises the primary question, what on earth? <laughs> what are we talking about with these horses? and the horsemen, what is this representing? Why is this here? What does this teach us about God? But these horsemen, especially the placement of it here in chapter six is so significant. It can't be understated how significant it is. And what happens next in chapter six and also the other judgment passages, which there are a lot of them in Revelation, but also taking into account the context of this book and the people that this is written to it really starts to make sense. So Revelation 6 verse nine says this, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted, screamed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? So we get this image of an altar, which is the place in which, in the Old Testament, people would bring their animals to sacrifice them. It was a form of worship. 
And under this altar are the souls of the martyrs, which is very strange. Like, what is that talking about? I think it's an allusion to that, uh, the great read through the Bible in a year killer, Leviticus. Um, Leviticus chapter four, verse seven says, the blood of burnt offerings was poured at the foot of the altar. So John is conceiving of the blood of the martyrs as this worshipful sacrifice to God with their lives literally being living sacrifices. And this concept of the sacrifice or the deaths of God's people being something that is good to him or pleasing to him is not unique just to this part of the Bible. Later in chapter 14, it says, blessed are those who die in the Lord, which sounds a lot like Psalm 116 that says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And for some, I imagine this concept of God being happy or celebrating the death of his people might make you wanna take a step back. You might wonder, isn't it kind of disturbing that God celebrates in our deaths? In my opinion, no. In fact, it's actually very beautiful because he knows that death is simply a doorway to him for those who are in Christ. It means that suffering that is inflicted by the world to God's people, to God's beloved, is over. And truly, there is a party going on in heaven. God has an eternal perspective. He is working towards the end, the ultimate redemption of the world. For God, far more important than any suffering or death that we experience in this life is the stuff that leads to eternal life. The stuff that leads to transformation of our beings to become more like Jesus because suffering and death is only temporary. Or as Paul says, it's a light and momentary trouble. And that perspective is so, so important for us to keep and is yet so, so hard. We hear the voices of the martyrs in chapter six screaming out, how long, how long, O Lord, until you bring judgment? How long until you bring justice? How long until you make all things right? And I think to different degrees, we pray this prayer a lot. How long, Lord, must I suffer with this illness? How long must I live with this sorrow or anxiety or depression or addiction or loneliness? How long until we can actually have a child? How long until you bring healing? How long until we see all of this war and violence put to rest? How long, O oh Lord? Which that's the lament of Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? In seasons or moments like this, it can feel like God doesn't care. But that could not be further from the truth. If you would, turn with me to Zechariah chapter one. I think John definitely had this section of scripture in his mind as he was writing Revelation six. Zechariah was a prophet of God during the time of transition from Babylonian captivity going back into Jerusalem. And he receives this dream from God that includes these four horsemen that are patrolling the earth, much like what we read in Revelation. The colors are a little bit different with the horses, but they are very, very similar. And in verse 12, after having this vision at night of these four horsemen patrolling the earth, it says in verse 12 of chapter one, upon hearing this, the angel of the Lord prayed this prayer, O Lord of heaven's armies, for 70 years now, which was the amount of time that um, they were in Babylonian captivity. 
You have been angry with Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. How long until you show mercy to them? And you hear that same question, right? And the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel said to me, shout this message for all to hear. Scream it. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. My love for Jerusalem and Mount Zion is passionate and strong. But I am very angry with the other nations that are now enjoying peace and security. I was only a little angry with my people, but the nations inflicted harm on them far beyond my intentions. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I have returned to show mercy to Jerusalem. My temple will be rebuilt, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and measurements will be taken for the reconstruction of Jerusalem, which this was all fulfilled as the second temple was being made. And then in verse 17 it says, say this also. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The towns of Israel will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem as his own. So there is so much overlap between Zechariah 1 and Revelation 6. We see in this scripture four horsemen patrolling the earth. We see the oppression of God's people from an oppressing nation. And they're asking how long until the Lord acts? How long until the Lord shows up? And we see here the passionate love that God has for his people and how he is angry at oppressing nations and how they were treating them. So much of the heart of Zechariah 1 is what is behind Revelation 6 here. Just like in Zechariah 1, these Christians are asking, how long until you act, Lord? How long until you overthrow Rome, this oppressor that is killing us? And what we read in Revelation 6 about these horsemen and really all the other judgment passages that are in Revelation, they are there to illustrate this, that God cares about his people's suffering. That he is not going to leave evil unchecked and that justice ultimately will be served. These four horsemen are metaphorical reminders that Rome and all of the forces that are trying to overthrow and kill God's people will be overthrown because God's passionate love for his beloved, the new Jerusalem, which we'll talk about in Revelation 21, or his bride. Though we can ask how long, in so many different ways, so much of this book is illustrating how much God is doing to bring justice for his people and redemption for the world. God is not flippant about the suffering that we endure. We see in Revelation chapter five and Revelation chapter eight that God collects all of our prayers in these golden bowls. It's like incense to him. That shows how much he loves us, how much he cares about us. In chapter 11, we read of these two prophets that are called the two witnesses, and they are martyred, they are killed, and all the people of the world are celebrating and reveling in their deaths, but then God raises them from the dead, and they are brought into the presence of God. And all the people that are left are like, oh my goodness, the glory of God is amazing and terrifying. I believe things like this are in place in Revelation to help bring encouragement to God's suffering people in real time. Because <laughs> in Revelation chapter two, we read to the letter to the church in Pergamum that one of their own was actually killed for what he believed. This was real time grieving. This was real time suffering that this church, these churches, these seven churches were facing. And so much of this book is just an illustration of just how committed God is to us 
and how much he loves us. It illustrates that our suffering is not in vain and that God is going to do what is necessary to bring about the perfect end to completion. Which leads us to this point. As Revelation 14 verse 12 says, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. The plea of Revelation is one of endurance. Though Rome is breathing down your neck, hold on to Jesus. He is worth it. We're not to quit on him when things get tough. Which that can be such a temptation whenever you are experiencing a dark night of the soul. Whether that's a moment or that's a prolonged season, right? And how we endure according to chapter 14 is to obey his commands and maintain faith in Jesus. Or, in other words, as the old hymn says, to endure through our suffering, we must trust and obey. We are to trust that in Jesus, our suffering is not in vain. We are to trust that God listens to every single prayer that we pray. To trust that God will bring justice to all kinds of evil. And trust that God will one day wipe away every single tear from our eyes. And ultimately trust that our suffering is doing something for us and in us. I just picked up uh, John Mark Homer's new book, Practicing the Way. And there's this really beautiful quote that captures exactly what I'm talking about today. He says, the most difficult moments in our lives, the ones we fear and avoid at all costs, are our crucibles. They have the most potential to forge our souls into the shape of Jesus. All the New Testament writers attest to this sacred mystery. James tells us to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds because they generate perseverance or endurance in us. And in time, maturity, Paul writes that perseverance will in turn create character and character hope. Peter urges us to greatly rejoice in our trials because they are like a refining fire, burning off the dross to reveal the gold. Can you see it? It's the very things we run from, avoid at all costs, dread, medicate, and deny that hold the secret to our liberation. These unhappy times of great emotional pain in a beautifully redemptive term have the potential, if we open to God in them, to transform us into grounded, deeply joyful people. Woo! <laughs> Going through all the hardship and the suffering that we do in this life, it is so hard. But if we turn to the Lord in it, and sometimes even if we don't turn to the Lord in it, it becomes God's refining process to make us more like Jesus. I think we oftentimes want the gold but not the refining process. We want the fast track to victory and fulfillment, but we don't wanna go through the hard to get there. And Jesus himself wanted to go down a different path in the garden. He didn't wanna go down the path of deepest suffering, and he was saying, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he still walked down the path of the cross, nonetheless which is yet another aspect of suffering that we don't talk tons about, is that it unites us with Jesus in this really beautiful and profound way. And if you flip that around too, it shows that Jesus can empathize with all of our suffering. He knows it on an experiential level. 
And knowing that our God took the path of the cross, it shows us the importance of carrying ours, whatever that looks like. In order for us to endure, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and trust that even if we do not see the big picture in this moment, in the middle of our suffering, and we don't understand why God is allowing us to be in all of these hard seasons in life, that in spite of all that, we trust that God is with us, that he is refining us in this process and is ultimately going to work all things out for good. I really believe that Jesus' belief in things like that are what enabled him to say, not my will, but your will be done in the midst of him about to be crucified. Because he knew who was ultimately in control and he knew that he is good. One of the timeless sayings from the movie Rocky Balboa, it ain't about how hard you're hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. We can take hits from a lot of different directions, right? Our own pain, our suffering, our persecution, our discontent, our doubt, maybe deconstruction, and they can really rock our system. But faith in Jesus doesn't mean that you can't ever be sad or grieve or be angry. Faith in Jesus doesn't mean that you can't question everything or anything and you have to have all the answers. Faith in Jesus is obedience in spite of not having all the answers. It's saying, I don't understand this, but I'm gonna show up anyway. I'm gonna choose to follow you even if I don't see the full picture. It's saying, I'm going through the ringer right now, but I'm gonna fix my eyes on you, Jesus. I'm gonna trust that I am on a journey and that what is happening to me right now is refining me to make me more like you. Even if we don't understand it, church, he is with us. And though we grieve, we grieve a lot of hard situations in life, we don't grieve as those without hope because we have a living hope in Christ and that is such a powerful witness to the rest of the world. For those that may not know, uh, my mom currently has stage four breast cancer and um, as we speak today, she's actually in a hospital bed because of the side effects from um, her chemo. And it's been, it's been hard. It's been super hard to go through. And my family, um, we're going through a lot right now. And I don't like that I'm far away from all of this. Um, and I don't, I don't like hearing about her and seeing her suffer. And yet at the same time, I don't grieve as one without hope. I trust that even though I don't see the big picture, even though I don't fully understand the why of why this is happening, I trust that even in darkness like this, God can turn it for his good. And I believe that he will turn it for his good. And I've already seen it a little bit, I mean, through this whole process. Um, my mom has been ministering to people through her illness and has really been an inspiration in that, which is not uncharacteristic. I mean, she's amazing. She's like my hero. And although I don't fully understand it and I don't see the full picture, I do, in a sense, see the very big picture that all of this suffering is temporary. Temporary. 
that we're moving to a place into a world in which heaven and earth are one and all things will be made right and God is going to remove all suffering and all sin and all sickness and disease and there will be no more tears. And though my time with my mother might be limited in this life, I know I got all eternity with her. Church, we might scream out, how long? How long, O Lord? But heaven screams back that God has passionate and strong love for you. And that our faith is worth enduring whatever we have to because God is worth it and in the end he is going to make all things right. So this morning, maybe you're experiencing a dark night of the soul. Maybe you're experiencing deep grief. You're experiencing what scripture calls the birth pains of creation. And know that you're not alone. But all of these birth pains are signs that things are not as they should be. They are signs that this world is not the one that we're living for. And it really does generate a beautiful opportunity for us to repent whenever we see these things in our world. And so I just want to encourage all of us, no matter what season you're in, no matter if you're in the deepest, darkest night of the soul right now, to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. To place your faith in him even if it doesn't make sense, even if you're mad at him, even if you're angry and you're questioning why is this happening, that you stick through it, that you endure because God is so worth it. What's in store is so worth it. So may we fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning that you just make your presence in our lives so abundantly evident. I know that there are people in these pews that are feeling deep desperation. I know there is so much hopelessness. I know there's so much pain. And I'm sure there is questioning you and questioning your plans and your purposes about why all of this is happening and why is it happening this way? Lord, I pray that you just help us to trust. Be with us. Throw your arm around us. Comfort us this morning. Help us know that you are here. (laughs) But help us to trust even though we don't have eyes to see it. Even though we can't make sense of it right now in our current context or whatever's going on. (sighs) Lord, help us to have great faith. Help us to trust that you are working and moving even whenever we don't feel it. And cling to us even though we may run from you. Help us to be a church that endures, that sticks with you through all the pain and through all the hard. Help us to keep our eyes fixed completely on you, Jesus. And in your name, we pray over our church. Amen. Amen.